Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. Welcome to Wild Oak Living, the program about living sustainably in Mendocino County and beyond. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I've been hosting and producing this program for many years, I realized the other day. It's been a while, and I really enjoy bringing this program to you. It, it's, it's all about living sustainably in the widest possible sense of the word as you probably have learned when you, if you're a regular listener. Today, we are going to have two sort of general topics. I'm going to start out because it is Black History Month, but not only because of that, but because in, in, the, in the last couple of weeks, several books um, have crossed my desk that I would like to share with you because they have just impressed me so much. And it's kind of a brief reading list for Black History Month, uh, those books that uh, I'm going to share with you. And then at about 9.20 this morning, we are going to be joined by Heather Hurwitz, who is a lecturer at Case Western University, and she has written a fascinating book called Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. And um, if you have always been wondering about um, what, what made up the Occupy Movement and what and its successes and, and, and why it, um, you know, and what it sort of uh, transcended into and why it didn't go on as long as some people expected it to. Uh, and what we can all learn about uh, from that for, for the future, please stay tuned. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. But I'd like to start out, uh, as I said, by uh, sharing with you a little bit about several books that I have come across recently that have really impressed me. And uh, the, the, the reason they've impressed me, and, and they're, they're quite different books, but they're all sort of on, on, a, on a similar theme. The reason they've expressed me is because they've made me look at the world in a whole new way. Um, and, and I've learned things that I didn't know before, which, you know, at, 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 at my age, I'm, I'm approaching seniorhood. Um, that's, you know, that's something to be treasured, to learn something that you didn't know before. And so that's why I want to share these books with you and, and highly recommend that you take a look at them. They've been fairly extensively covered in the media, um, but, you know, we get so much information today that you might have missed it, or even if you didn't miss it, you know, it might have just sort of passed by. And so I want to be sure that we're all aware of this. And the first book, uh, is called Some of Us, uh, and it examines the hidden cost of racism for everyone. And the everyone is really important because uh, the, the author of this book argues that uh, racism, um, and, and the, the author is Heather McGee, M-C-G-H-E-E. -E. Um, she, she argues that uh, racism obviously affects those that you know, against whom racism is targeted, but it's also it also affects the rest of the society. And I've learned so many things in this interview um, about um, about the history of racism, but also how uh, racism uh, um, how it okay, I'm at a loss for words now. <laughs> how it uh, impacts so many daily aspects of society for all of us. And so I just want to share a little bit um, about, about the book with you, um, just as, as by, way of, by way of background. And so here's, here's um, 
And this book, by the way, is uh, by Heather McGee, as I said before. And she argues that that we can prosper as a society, as, as a society as a whole, by dealing with racism, because racism actually costs all of us. And uh, this is something that Ibram uh, X. Kendi said about the book, and I think it's so right on point. Uh, one of today's most insightful and influential thinkers offers a powerful exploration of inequality and the lessons that generations of Americans have failed to learn. Racism has a cost for everyone, not just for people of color. Um, Heather McGee specializes in the uh, American economy and the mystery um, of why so often it so often fails the American public. Um, from the financial crisis to rising student debt to collapsing public infrastructure, she found a common root problem, and that root problem is racism. But not just in the most obvious indignities for people of color, racism has cost costs for white people too. It is the common denominator of our most vexing public problems, the core of dysfunction in our democracy, and it, uh, it uh, constitutes a spiritual and moral crisis that grips all of us. And then Heather McGee goes on to explore how this happened and if there is a way out. She um, embarks on a deeply personal journey across the country from Maine to Mississippi to California, telling what we lose when we buy into the zero-sum paradigm, the idea that progress for some of us must come at the expense of others. Along the way, she meets white people who confide in her about losing their homes, their dreams, and their shot at better jobs to the toxic mix of American racism and greed. This is the story of how public goods in this country, from parks and pools to functioning schools, have become private luxuries, of how unions collapsed, wages stagnated, and inequality increased, and of how this country, unique among the world's advanced economies, has thwarted universal health care. But in unlikely places of worship and work, McGee finds proof of what she calls the solidarity dividend gains, and that, that come when people come together across race to accomplish what we simply can't do on our own. So again, this is, uh, this is the first book that I would like to recommend uh, um, for Black History Month, but, you know, just in general, it's just an amazing book. You will learn so many things about, about areas of, of our lives that are impacted or that are um, um, influenced by racism or that have or problems that have occurred because of racism that you would not necessarily connect the dots. So this is called The, the Sum of Us, S-U-M, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. The next book that I wanted to talk to you about is um, a book called 400, Zo 400 Souls, S-O-U-L-S, 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. And this is edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine. This is uh, also a, a, an amazing uh, book, also in the way that it's structured. It's um, it's a, it's basically a storybook. Um, it, the story begins in 1619, a year before the Mayflower, when the white lion disgorges some 20 and odd Negroes onto the shores of Virginia, 
and that's in quotes, some 20 and odd Negroes in quotes, onto the shores of Virginia, inaugurating the African presence in what would become the United States. It takes us to the present when African-Americans, descendants of those on the white lion and a thousand other routes to this country continue a journey defined by inhuman oppression, visionary struggles, stunning achievements, and millions of ordinary lives passing through extraordinary history. 400 Souls is a unique one-volume community history of African-Americans. The editors, uh, Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha and Blaine, have assembled 90 brilliant writers, each of whom takes on a five-year period of that 400-year span. The writers explore their periods through a variety of techniques, historical essays, short stories, personal vignettes, and fiery polemics. They approach history from various perspectives through the eyes of towering historical icons or the untold stories of ordinary people, through places, laws, and objects. While themes of resistance and struggle of hope and reinvention course through the book, this collection of diverse pieces from 90 different minds, reflecting 90 different perspectives, fundamentally deconstructs the idea that Africans in America are a monolith. Instead, it unlocks the startling range of experiences and ideas that have always existed within the community of blackness. This is a history that illuminates our past and gives us new ways of thinking about our future, written by the most vital and essential voices of our present. So again, this book, the second of the three books that I'm recommending for you as a reading list for Black History Month this morning, is called 400 Souls. It's a community history of African America, America 1619 to 2019, edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Kendi is spelled K-E-N-D-I, and Keisha N. Blaine spelled B-L-A-I-N. And the third, the third book that I wanted to talk to you about is, and then let me just, my little iPad here is a little snow, slow, so let me just make sure I have the right page here. So the third book, and this is something, that this book you can actually um, both get the book to read, but you can also watch a fascinating interview with the author of the book because it was actually featured on the Commonwealth Club of California and there's a one hour interview uh, that you can uh, watch with the author of the book uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give that information out again at the end of this little um, presentation about the book. So the book is called The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And the author of the book is Anna Malaika Tubbs, and that's spelled M Malaika is spelled M A L A I K A, and Tubbs' last name is T U B B S. A young woman, I was amazed. Um, I was amazed. I was just. I'm, I'm constantly blown away when when young people have such broad perspectives on on history and life. Um, but of course, she's a scholar and 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 a learned person. And it's no surprise, but it was also interesting to find out that she is the wife of the 
young man who was the um, first African-American mayor of Stockton at, I think, age 26 or 29 or something like that, um, and uh, who just lost the election to someone else, but uh, who made a big difference in Stockton while he was there. Um, for example, um, he instituted an experiment there with uh, with a basic income in Stockton. You might have heard about that. But anyway, Anna Maleka Tubbs has, has written a book um, that is just fascinating. And if you, and, and, and the interview with her is also fascinating. So I, I recommend both of those. Um, this is, uh, I'll just share a little write-up about the book. Um, Burtis Baldwin, Alberta King, and Louise Little, those are the three mothers we're talking about, were all born at the beginning of the 20th century and forced to contend with the prejudices of Jim Crow as black women. These three extraordinary women passed their knowledge to their children with the hope of helping them to survive in a society that would deny their humanity from the very beginning. From Louise teaching her children about their activist roots, to Burtis encouraging James to express himself through writing, to Alberta basing all of her lessons in faith and social justice. These women used their strength and motherhood to push their children toward greatness, all with a conviction that every human being deserves dignity and respect, despite the rampant discrimination they faced. These three mothers taught resistance and a fundamental belief in the worth of black people in their sons, even when these beliefs flew in the face of America's racist practices and led to ramifications for all three families' safety. The fight for equal justice and dignity came above all else for the three mothers. These women, their similarities and differences as individuals and as mothers, represent a piece of history left untold in a celebration of Black motherhood long overdue. One of the reasons that I was so impressed by the book is, is to see the commonalities between what these three mothers shared with children and, and to realize that, um, you know, Ma Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King and James Baldwin didn't just appear as fully formed persons. Um, they were obviously raised by someone, and this book explores, you know, how they, how they were raised and how their mothers powerfully influenced the, the civil rights leaders that they ended up becoming. So this book, again, is The Three Mothers, and it is by Anna Malaika Tubbs, M-A-L-A-I-K-A-T-U-B-B-S. And as I said, if you, if you go to YouTube and you search for Commonwealth Club, and, and the name of the author or the name of the book, The Three Mothers or Anna Malika Tubbs, you will find a link to a one-hour interview, a video interview that the Commonwealth Club of California did with the author about the book. And it's just fascinating. Also, um, um, I think both the Anna Malika Tubbs and Heather McGee, the author of the first book, The Sum of Us, uh, we're interviewed on Fresh Air, so if you want to go back and, and look at the Fresh Air archive, you can also find uh, audio interviews about that. Okay, that was my little reading list to share with you for um, Black History Month. I hope, I hope you enjoy these books there. All three of them are very powerful, and as I said, I've learned so much that I didn't know before from all, from, from all three of them. Now I would like to... Um, 
move on to our second topic today. And I'm just, uh, if you would bear with me for a second, I am, hmm, I thought my guest was, had joined us on Zoom, but I am not seeing her. Ah, here we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome, Heather. My guest, Heather Herwitz, Herwitz has joined us. Are you hearing me, Heather? Thanks. Yes, I can hear you. And those sound like awesome books. I'm going to go check out the ones you were just talking about. They are all three of them and, and, and awesome and awesome authors too. <laughs> yeah. So welcome. Welcome Heather Hurwitz. Um, Thank you. I asked Heather Hurwitz to join us this morning. I just want to give a little bit of a background um, about your book and about you before we, before we get into talking about the book. Um, I'm, I'm glad you were able to join us a little early today because as I was putting together questions this morning, I realized, oh, this could be, this is, could be a program filling conversation. Great. So much to talk, so much to talk about. Super. So, uh, so let me just share a little bit of background about the book and about my author. The book that we're going to be talking about with Heather McKee Hurwitz, who is my guest, is called Are We the 99%? The Occupant Movement, Occup I'm sorry, the Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. And here's a little bit of a background. The protesters that comprised the Occupy Wall Street movement came from diverse backgrounds, but how were these activists who sought radical justice through many ideologies able to break down oppressions and obstacles within the movement and actually did they really do that and in what ways did the movement perpetuate status quo structures of inequality um, are we then 99 percent uh, is the first comprehensive feminist and intersectional analysis of the occupy movement heather mckee Hurwitz considers how women people of color and gender queer activists struggled to be heard and understood Despite cries of we are the 99% signaling solidarity, certain groups were unwelcome or unable to participate. Moreover, problems with racism, sexism, and discrimination due to sexuality and class persisted within the movement. No surprise. Using immersive firsthand accounts of activists' experiences, online communications, and media coverage of the movement, Hurwitz reveals lessons gleaned from the conflicts within Occupy. She compares her findings to those of other contemporary protest movements, nationally and globally, so that future movements can avoid infighting and deploy an intersectional imperative to embrace both diversity and inclusivity. And this book, I Read the 99% by my guest, Heather McHurwitz, is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Heather uh, McKee Hurwitz is a lecturer of sociology and feminist scholar at Case Western Reserve University and a visiting researcher at the Cleveland Clinic. For nearly 20 years, she has been participating in and studying a variety of social movements in the U.S. and Global South, including a feminist anti-war student environmental and Occupy movements. She analyzes contemporary urban protests and social movements using a feminist and intersectional lens. And she has also uh, digitized uh, many, much of the material from um, from the uh, uh, the Occupy Ar uh, archive that informs this book into a uh, public online archive, and, and we can talk in, in a moment about how people can access that. Well, welcome again, Heather, and thank, thank you for you. joining us on on Wild Oak Living this morning. 
I want to perhaps before we start out, there's usually a, there's usually a question that I ask um, all my guests who've who are, who've come on the show to to uh, write a book, and that is um, how did you get how did you get into writing about this, this topic? Mm-hmm. I was a graduate student at University of California, Santa Barbara, when the Occupy movement started. I was curious about social movements where men, women, and gender queer people were all participating together. And I was hoping to understand some of the innovative ways that they came together across these, across their gender identities. And then the Occupy movement was kind of just happening all over the country in the fall of 2011. I mean, it was in more than a thousand places around the world. And I thought I have to study this movement and see what I can learn. And some of the initial reports were that there were some places with really diverse groups of activists involved. And then I also read some reports about the movement being really dominated by white people and some racist happenings at these movements or just a lack of concern for racial justice. I started to learn also about um, gender queer people, trans people not really feeling comfortable there, feminists having some critiques of the movement. And so I got really interested in what was happening and I kind of put on my hat as a a supporter of a researcher and a feminist all at once. And I, and I dug into studying it and talking with a lot of people about their experiences. That's for, um, it, it's been 10 years since the Occupy movement, which by the way, when I, when I, when I heard, when I heard that, I thought 10 years, it's really been 10 years. Amazing. Yeah. Um, let's recap just, just quickly what, what the Occupy movement was just as, as a historical background for the discussion we'll have about it. Absolutely. And I think that's so important because probably a lot of your listeners know about Occupy, but a lot of my students don't really. They think that Black Lives Matter started this whole period of activism when actually it was the Occupy movement in the U.S. And before that, even Um, The Occupy movement was inspired by the Arab Spring and by people protesting in the Wisconsin state capital um, and other kinds of movements such as in Greece for um, democracy and against the effects of the Great Recession. So I think to really think about Occupy, we have to go back to 2007, 2008, 2009, great economic downturn a lot of people losing their jobs, the housing market um, imploding, people's adjustable rate mortgages um, really kind of skyrocketing, and a lot of people losing their homes. So it was a really bleak economic time. And around the world, people started responding to this and trying to fight for their rights and government assistance and It really wasn't happening. Um, And so activists in New York were watching these protests around the world, and especially the Arab Spring, which is the 10-year anniversary of that, too, um, this year. And um, 
and such heroic activism of people sleeping overnight in the streets, pushing to rid their governments, uh, several of them, of autocratic rulers who had had been in power for a really long time, um, especially Tunisia and Egypt were some of the most widespread and um, really thrilling protests. And activists in New York, activists around the U.S. were watching this, many of them um, sending solidarity messages over social media and thinking about how could something like this happen in the United States and what would it be like? And some activists in New York organized to camp out in a park near Wall Street and do some marches and protests there. Uh, it caught on and activists in San Francisco took it up and soon after activists around the country. And it was a, in response to those economic inequalities was a really big part of the movement and also a push for people having just a greater say in democracy. And you, you'd think one of the, um, um, you know, one one of the big themes, I guess, of the Occupy movement, um, in in addition to sort of the economic aspects, was was equality and 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 sort of horizontal participation instead of hierarchy, hierarchical up and down kind of kind of management. To what extent um, did that did that succeed or fail? So the the mission of the movement was to be very unified, a a mass movement that could cut across many different interests. If you were not the 1% most wealthy, the movement welcomed you. And it was professed to be a place for the 99% of people because we all have reasons to unify. And even as you're mentioning, the 99% of people, anyone could be a leader in this movement. If you have a great idea for a protest, come to the Occupy movement, let's make your event happen. That was the message around organizing this movement. And it did unify a lot of people. It encouraged so many people to come down and try to start to take part. But the 99% was unifying only to a degree. I had many people that I spoke with tell me I felt really lumped into this 99% idea and it's erasing my particular experience of racial discrimination. I'm not being heard about my unique experiences as a woman during the financial crisis. And there were also ways that there, there was not an acceptance of a range of different leaders in the movement. Many were kind of marginalized, and um, some of these innovative events by unique leaders didn't fully get off of the ground for a range of reasons. And it, it, and it looks like what you found is is that the, um, you know, the people who come to a, a movement like that. You know, they they come with their world roots and they come with their experiences and they come they come with with their with their knowledge of 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 
um, of what they think works and doesn't work. And they come also with their privileges or with their disadvantages. And, 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 and it's interesting that, that even in a progressive movement like the Occupy movement, that was, that was pretty obvious, right? It seems. Absolutely. We can, we have to recognize that as much as we want to radically change who are the leaders, in the world around us, the majority of leaders are white men. We have expectations about that. We think of white men as legitimate leaders. And if you're not white, or if you're not a man, and if you're at the intersection of both of those identities, followers, and I say the term followers kind of lovingly, I think followers are so important and they were very active in Occupy, but followers are, are hesitant to recognize a leader who's not in their comfort zone of who they think of as legitimate. And, um, and of course, as you're saying, um, our privileges and our oppressions come with us into social movement spaces. And we can't just by naming the mission of the movement erase those. This takes a lot of work. And a lot of those tensions came out in the movement. I want to explore that a bit more and also also talk about the, the word that appears in your title and that you've already mentioned once, and that's uh, intersectionality and your focus on feminism and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and queer people's experience during the Occupy movement. Let me just take a moment to let everybody know that you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX and Z. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I bring you, I apologize. And I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. here on KZYX and Z. My guest today is Heather Hurwitz. She's the author of a book called We Are the 99%, The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. If you have any questions about this program or feedback or suggestions, um, please send me an email. The email address is contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. I'd love to hear from you um, what you think about the programs that you're hearing and also topics that you'd like to see covered in the future. And also, if you are representing a local community group or organization or nonprofit that are doing good things for our county and for the people in our county or that, that are building community, please let me know because I love to cover these kinds of, uh, I'm, I'm very solutions focused and I like, I like to cover things that people are doing that solve uh, real world problems and that help bring us together as a community. So let's talk about uh, intersectionality. That This is a word uh, I have to admit, and you know, I'm being very open now, um, a word that I came across fairly recently and that I still don't quite understand. And so I'm one of the reasons I'm really happy to have you here today is, is perhaps you can help us understand the concept of intersectionality and how that relates to the analysis that you do in your book. Absolutely. Intersectionality is a concept that Kimberly Crenshaw created. She is a lawyer and a professor at Columbia University and UCLA. She's also one of the founders of the Say Her Name project. And intersectionality is the idea that our experiences 
and the relative privilege and power that we have or the oppressions that we experience are not just based on one aspect of our lives or our identity. We can't just think about class inequality without thinking about how racism and how sexism and how other forms of oppression intersect with and amplify and exacerbate the kind of inequality we might experience um, with class. So the, this is a, a way to bring together our experience of class oppression, racial oppression, gender oppression together and think about it in a much more complex way. And it's an important part of the book because there were some activists in the movement who were coming from this intersectional perspective and saying what the movement does needs to be doing it in an, using intersectional praxis, doing actions based on our analysis of the current state of the world as a combination of class, race, gender oppressions together. And then there were some people who were more focused on the class aspect, you know, just the, we're here about class inequality, we're here to change economics, and it wasn't taking in that racial justice or feminist perspective. You argue, one of the arguments you make in your book is that, um, is that intersectionality or how people engage based on intersectionality with each other and with the movement and with, you know, with sort of the world that they're trying to influence uh, is, is, is key in whether social movements succeed or fail. Can you explore that a bit more? Yes. It's imperative that social movements name people's experiences specifically. Uh, the Great Recession hit people in different ways. And so naming people's particular experiences of that, just as the COVID crisis hits people in based on whether you're a woman, a man employed in particular work um, of particular racial and ethnic background. And whether you can work at home or whether you have to go out in the world and work in a grocery store as a first responder, right? Makes Absolutely. a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And we need to name these oppressions particularly. We need to tell these stories about people who are at the intersection of multiple forms of inequality and know that and recognize it and be have that be incorporated as part of our goals of our movement to make change on multiple levels. And then link to that there are movements that are particularly focused on some of these inequalities. Um, let's say particularly around racial justice organizing, let's say, or around class-based organizing. Well, our mass movements, if we have that intersectional perspective, can be oriented to reaching out and creating coalitions that are also intersectional to kind of bring together um, movements and experts in these different areas and create a more intersectional movement in that way. 
One of the things that, that just occurred to me as I was listening to you is that that um, that kind of intersectional focus, you know, could could do a lot to promote inclusivity and to make people feel heard as a part of the movement. Uh, at the same time, it could also serve to sort of splinter the message, right? In terms of how the movement is seen from the outside or from from the from the audience that that some of these actions would be targeted to. I can see that both ways, absolutely. Um, and I think that's something that movements need to kind of be aware of um, to think about that. I, I, for me, I feel like having an intersectional perspective, though, doesn't weaken the movement. It doesn't weaken a message because you're being more complex and kind of real about people's real lives. We're complex people. We mm -hmm. can't really just be reduced down to, I'm a fast food worker, you know, or I'm an Amazon worker. We have big complex lives um, beyond that. And actually that's, I'm, as I'm just thinking about that, that actually takes me to, ties into the next question that I have. And that is the fact that the Occupy movement was really the face, first sort of mass movement that used Facebook and other social media to both to organize and also to get the message out. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking if I'm, if I'm thinking about intersectionality and about diverse people being part of a movement, the social media tools today allow us to reach out to a whole diversity of different groups and, 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 and we may actually not I realized as I was at the question that I asked before, we may not, that movement may not need a unified message anymore because each member of the movement is going to be reaching out to their own, to their own Facebook group or whatever, <laughs> whatever social media target. Can you talk a bit about how being on social media influenced the Occupy movement and, mm -hmm. and some of the things that, that we've learned from that for the future? Mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter, it's hard to imagine them being foreign. They're so yeah. much a part of the fabric of our lives. But in the Occupy movement, they held trainings about how to tweet um, and how to use Facebook. And it was the first movement in the U.S. to really do this on a wide scale. It was a place where people could come together after the encampments and um, there was a kind of space for people to both celebrate what happened and air some of their grievances. So a lot of feminists met online and were or organized very quickly. Um, you know, the exclusion of women in social movements is not new. These, this has been happening since the civil rights movement, the 1950s, the anti-war and the new left in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and the, they, I think, took longer to recognize the tensions and organize around it than the Occupy movement because people used social media and very quickly were able to create women's only tents and spaces and feminist groups where people could air if they had been kind of hit on or being harassed. Um, and I'll just kind of 
say, I have to say, because you were making me think about this with your comment about maybe social movements don't need to have really a central message. And you're making me think about feminist movements and how broad and diverse feminist movements are. And there's so many different messages. And yet feminist movements are some of the longest going and some of the most um, diverse maybe not really inclusive, there's a lot of splintering within feminist movements. And I think feminists are still working on coming together across differences rather than being sort of separate feminist groups. But um, we've, we've come a long way with, with the power of feminist movements being so kind of decentralized and diverse and a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Um, but now uh, being, you know, yeah, maybe maybe social media can kind of connect those threads enough to uh, have a really different shape of mass movements, but more broad and diverse than we've seen. Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe I as 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 somebody that 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 you know that I'm just sort of I as a generic person. You know, maybe I don't need to connect with the entire movement. Maybe I just need to connect with the part of the movement that resonates with my experience. So, yeah, in, in, interesting. I, Go ahead. Um, and, and I think that is powerful. But my concern about that is what happened in Occupy when people were kind of splintering off and finding power and finding connection with people who shared their particular passions and goals. Um, they, there were feminist groups, racial justice groups, um, LGBTQ groups, and, and other groups. I mean, even just, you know, certain people who shared the same kind of work, art and culture workers split off into their own group. What, the main movement, though, did not respond to some of the critiques of we're splintering off because black people don't feel like we can be leaders in this movement. We're splintering off because women are saying that we're being harassed and the main movement isn't doing something about it. So I do think that the main movement should have really stopped and said, there's a lot of tension going on here. We might need to reframe this movement. We might need even a different name. We might need to just stop this for a moment and kind of look at what's going on because we are being dominated by white male leaders. So that's my only caution about mm -hmm. having a really um, decentralized movement when there are some kind of deep issues with the main, the main movement's messages. Yeah. You, you, you say that um, we are or in a kind of a unique period as far as social movements are concerned. Can you, can you talk a bit about the, more about that? And, you know, to what extent did the, like, did the Occupy movement influence that? And also, how does the pandemic, you think, play into the life of social movements these days? Mm-hmm. The Occupy movement and the movements that have come after it are incredible because it's so multi-generational. Activists from 
the 50s, 60s, and 70s are still active in also you know, the 80s, 90s, um, and then new activists, um, the millennial generation are coming into political life right now. And we, we haven't had social movements like that before with just so much knowledge and experience. And um, I, we also haven't had a moment with the internet and with, you know, for the millennial generation, this idea of intersectionality and also an acceptance of gender queer people and LGBTQ people, it's a part of what they've kind of grown up with. There's a lot of tools that we have now for social movements that uh, we haven't had in prior generations. Um, and I think we're seeing some of the fruits of all of these benefits to today's activism in the Black Lives Matter movement that really started with more of that intersectional message. The three founders of the movement, Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi, being um, longtime activists who themselves are Black queer women, they brought some of that understanding of intersectionality and centering racial justice um, and then going off from that to the movement. And I think that's been part of their strength. Um, oh, and you asked me about the pandemic as well. Yeah, and, and the, some of the interesting parallels in terms of, you know, the, 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 the economic background for the Occupy movement. And, and now we're in a similar situation again. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, these were the kinds of experiences um, as far as, you know, people losing jobs, unemployment, housing insecurity that sparked the Occupy movement. Um, you know, I can't predict the future, but I think that, you know, we, we could see greater uh, activism as more people become vaccinated and more people um, have been doing, I think, a lot of research and understanding since the terrible unjust killing of George Floyd this summer, um, we're, we're pretty ripe for continued social movement activity, um, both as far as the, on the economic front, the racial justice front, um, and of course we've seen the feminist movement over the last several years much more in the streets and um, public. Feminists are often doing, a lot of feminists act more on the community level, but of late, we've even seen a great surge of feminist activism in a very outward way. Um, I wanted, to, I have, I still have a long list of questions, but I wanna be sure that I give you some, an opportunity to you know to talk to us about something that you really care about as far as the the topic of your book is concerned that i might not have asked you about so i want to i want to give you a few minutes to you know to take us somewhere that we haven't gone to yet so thanks for that opportunity i think that this is a this is a moment um of great social movement activity and it's also the 10-year anniversary of Occupy this year. And what an opportunity to kind of look back 
to think about where we've come, where we've been um, as activists and even just these political messages. If you're not an activist, but if you're just paying attention, it's, it's incredible to kind of look back and reflect with many of the people who I interviewed in the book, a lot, mostly women of a range of racial and ethnic backgrounds, to hear their really brave stories about their experiences, both very positive and then, on the other hand, some kinds of sexist messages that they encountered and um, experiences like um, advocating for walkie-talkies to make the encampment more safe and just really being undermined until a man spoke up with the same suggestion. And I think some of these practices we hear about in happening in boardrooms and corporate spaces, maybe oh, in yes, I've experienced, I've experienced those myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they were all, they're also happening in social movements. And I think that's, that's something that we can definitely work on going forward. You, you write that, um, or at least you ask the question, moving forward, how do progressives build solidarity across gender, race, class, and sexual identities within mass movements? And that is certainly a, a, that is certainly a, a challenge, isn't it? It is. I think we have to recognize it's tough. We come with a lot of unacknowledged biases and just ways that we we expect that maybe we don't even realize how much we legitimize white men leaders over others and yet we do we have to we have to if we really want to have a prefigurative or a really radical forward thinking way of coming together what well, we have to recognize what we're bringing in and think about you know, okay, an indigenous woman leader is going to lead this movement. I want to be open to that. I accept that. It's a little different than, you know, the leaders of most government positions and corporate positions, but I'm going to put that kind of, uh, that long time learning that I bring with me from our wider society on hold. I'm going to try something new. And that's hard to dig into, but I think it's possible. An Indigenous woman leader may be about to lead the Department of Interior, so that would be a good role model right there, wouldn't it? That would be. I've been watching (laughs) her try her her hearing closely. Uh, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about the digital archive, because I think that might be a, a, a nice way for our listeners to uh, to to get into some of the in, uh, material that you use for compiling your book. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, the archive, you can reach it through my website. So that's www.arewethe99book.com. And you'll see a little graphic for the archive. You can just link and go there. And I is, the, is that are we the 99 is the 99 a number or is it spelled out? The 99 is a number. Okay, so are we the 
book.com. Book. .com. Okay, great. Good. And I worked with re student researchers and librarians at my university to take the hundreds of pages, over a thousand pages of materials about the Occupy movement, scan them, and make them accessible through an online archive. And it's a place where students, teachers, researchers can reuse these materials and explore those range of messages that I analyze in the book and kind of look through um, the art, the flyers, the newspapers for yourselves and gain a lot of great ideas about what to do for future movements and some ideas about maybe what you don't want to do um, by looking at some of those materials. And again, that website is arewethe99book.com. Um, we've got about four minutes left in the program. And so uh, what is it uh, that we could talk about is that you explore in your book that, that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, maybe some of the conclusions. I, you, you, you have some interesting conclusions about, you know, what you think. I mean, we've covered on it. We've covered it a little bit, but in terms of what can maybe summarize again, what, we, what can people who are thinking about engaging in social movements or starting social movements, what can we learn from the, from the Occupy movement? Mm -hmm. We need to provide more training to new activists and especially activists that want to become leaders of social movements. There were some activists in Occupy that um, tried to distribute who was speaking. They used something called a progressive stack, where if you had spoken a lot or if you were white or male and kind of came to the movement with a lot of privilege already, um, you were moved to the bottom of the speaker list. And people who had different ideas, um, who came from a more marginalized background, or maybe you were um, an indigenous person or a woman, you are moved toward the top of the list. And in that way, some groups tried to hear different voices and give that floor and that power over to activists who maybe are not traditionally heard. And this was a great practice, but it was not super widespread. And I think it's a good example of how we need training in movements. We need to learn the history of movements. We need to stop and really think about some of these innovations and asking our leaders to, to be um, trained in this and, and trained in how to make a movement more diverse. It doesn't just happen naturally. Um, I think it really takes having some central, more centralized direction um, and the movement attempted to do this uh, in, in many ways, but we need to do it even more. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to, to, to um, leave this conversation. Thank you again so much for joining us this morning, Heather McKee Herwitz, the author of the book, Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, 
feminism and intersectionality. And tell us your website again. It's www.rwethe99book.com. Well, thank you so much for doing this amazing, uh, profound project. I think I think you, you you are sharing a lot of important information for everyone going forward and on what we can learn from the Occupy movement. Thank you so much for being on Wild Earth Living this morning. Thank you, Johanna. Take Thanks care. Talking with you. you too. Likewise. <laughs> This is Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. We're going to be back in two weeks on March 11th. And um, we're going to be talking with uh, the uh, with uh, Mendocino County uh, Resource. We're going to be talking about land trust. Let's just say in, in general, uh, we're going to be talking about land trust and about uh, resource conservation and about what's happening in in our country in in our county, as far as uh, uh, conserve, conserving and protecting land, um, the details uh, are going to be coming up soon. If you'd like to be on the list for upcoming program announcements, just send me an email to contact at wildoak.org or stay tuned to Casey Wax to find out more details. Again, I'll be back March 11th at uh, 9 a.m. Join us then, and now we've got some beautiful music coming up on KZYX. Thanks for listening. This is Johanna Wildock. I'll talk to you in two weeks from now. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.